<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a cartoonist more than anything. I had inherited some artistic abilities from my father, who was a very gifted artist who had trained at art college in Los Angeles. But it was a dream. Despite his talents, my father never got a chance to make a living or even a cent off of his artwork. He worked full-time as a draftsman at the massive Lockheed Aerospace Center in Burbank, drove a cab at night, and worked hard to raise four kids while trying his best to serve his creative abilities. Unfortunately, it was too much for him. He had a breakdown and basically gave up his artistic dreams and settled into working a more typically prescribed life in the San Fernando Valley. So I really wanted to take up where he had left off. He created two comic book series that were never published, Hap Nelson, TV wrestler, and Hap Hogan, TV reporter. He was, as he said at the time, Hap Happy. As I look back on his work now, I'm impressed by how modern it is. But it also really reminds me of the Filipino EC comic artist Joe Orlando more than anything. My parents split up when I was around 12 or so, and that might have had something to do with the change in my priorities at the time. I started writing more than drawing, and soon that was my new dream, my new passion. As I read Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson, I realized that writing had hooked me even more than drawing had. I never studied art, never pursued it beyond a kid's hobby, and I put down my pencils and learned to type. But I read books and comics voraciously, consumed television and movies, and became, like most of us, a child of the media. Though comics have not played as much a part in my adult life, they have grown in popularity to amazing heights, and I'm still impressed by the remarkable artists who create them. One of the premier writers whose career combines comics and horror is Steve Niles. Yes, he has worked in the superhero world as well. Is it possible to write comics well and not visit the land of capes and cowls? But no one has staked a claim in the horror comics world deeper than he has. And of course, that has led to working in film and television as well. Let's put him on the slab and see what makes him tick. Steve, haven't seen you in a couple of years, and it's so great to see you again, and uh, just eager to catch up. Yeah, it's really great to see you too. It's, it's been way too long. Yeah, well, you you came from Washington, D.C., and you were not just interested in comics and film and television, but also music. And were they kind of a shared passion? What was the direction that, that really dug its teeth into you uh, hardest? You know, what it really was, was this, I came up in the DC hardcore scene, 
um, our, our records were on a, a label called Discord. And one uh-huh. of the things I loved about this scene was um, everybody did everything themselves. We put out our own records. We did our own demos. We booked our own shows. You know, we, there was no, we weren't looking for fame and fortune or anything like that. We just wanted to play in bands, but I loved the do it yourself of it. And um, so when I, it literally was like this one day I was sitting there going like, I could make my own comics. I could do it, you know, and I, you know, it, it, it was one of those moments and it was in the midst of all the music stuff, but I really, I took that to heart that I could, I could do this myself and I just threw myself into it. And the first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to make comics out of some of my favorite writers, uh, Uh their works. So I started writing letters. I wrote letters to Clive Barker. I wrote letters to Richard Matheson. And to my shock, because I was 19, 20 years old, you know, I was just a kid. Yeah. Um, They both wrote me back and they both said yes. Amazing. Um, Matheson, Matheson in particular, it was amazing because he wrote me this note, which I still have, that said, you know, because I want what I wanted to do was make I Am Legend into a comic. And mm-hmm. he wrote me this little short note saying, yes, we would love, I'd love to see what you can do, but I'm afraid I'll have to ask for $100 for the rights. <laughs> now, for a guy so, in a punk band, that was a big, big ask. Oh, yeah, I had to borrow it. But, you know, but it was, <laughs> I, I still, you know, couldn't believe it uh, that he would you know, have faith in this 19 year old. And that led sort of directly to me working with Clive. And, and this is blood, when, which is how I think blood. everybody discovered Clive in the first place. Exactly. I, I love those books so much. And at the time there was a company called Eclipse Comics mm-hmm. and they were quite big at the time. And Clive had sold them rights to half the books of blood and he sold the other half to me. Wow. And so you, was just, your company was Arcane, right? Arcane Comics. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, it took me a while to really learn. You know, basically, I wasn't very good at the business, but I managed to get a few things done. Um, one of the things which you might remember, um, we did limited edition lithographs of Clive's covers for the Books of Blood. Yes, I remember uh, very well. Yeah. So that was my first publishing venture that was, you know, and uh, did that in an anthology and then came to the kind of crushing realization that I wanted to be a creator, not a businessman. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I just didn't like it. Uh, I wasn't very good at it, you know, but what I loved was the networking with other creators and all this kind of stuff. So what I wound up doing was um, I teamed up with Eclipse and mm-hmm. we put out, Son of Celluloid and Rawhead Rex, you know, and, and Yattering and Jack and all these. And we did them as individual graphic novels, which I really loved. But, um, you know, the music thing was very important to me. I'm still, I still do it. You know, we still get together and play every once in a while, you know. Um, But yeah, one really led to the other. There sort of got to be a point where I was trying to do both and I had to pick. And I picked comics. And you could make a living doing comics as opposed to being in a punk band. <laughs> exactly. There was no money. In, you know, 
in the company. Yeah. Well, uh, and you're one of I, the amazing, amazing few to have done very well in the world of comics and been able to make it your living and expand into other media beyond that, which we'll get into a little later. But uh, yeah. when you started writing, was it with the intent of writing for comics or was it fiction or was it for visual media? My first writing attempt was writing Cal McDonald stories, which is a character that I do to this day. Yes. Um, but they were prose. They were prose stories um, because until I got into the comic industry, I had no clue how to write a comic script. <laughs> so, you know, I, it actually took me meeting some other creators and getting copies of scripts, you know, that I could copy. Um, and it was actually, it was a really good, adapting other people's work was a really great way to break in. Mm -hmm. It really taught, taught me how to write because I, I already had a great story. I knew that. So right. I just had to interpret it, you know, to, to make sure I did the right job. And that led directly, you know, when I started doing Cal McDonald comics, I was just adapting my own short stories. Well, tell me a little bit about that character of Cal McDonald, because uh, you also worked with Thomas Jane for a while to bring that character to the screen. Tell me a little bit about how that happened. Well, you know, Cal is just one of those characters. I've just loved him. Uh, it's one of these voices you can just slip into. He's, he's your hard-boiled detective who has a horrible drug problem and lives in a world of monsters. You know, and so... It's, it's actually, you know, there's a lot of comedy to it, but it's, it's very much, you know, in the hard-boiled Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett school of writing, you know, except with monsters and drugs. Um, and I, I had been doing him for years and years. And one day I was at a convention and I got approached by Tom Jane. And he had the very first Cal McDonald comic that ever came out. And he was just like, you know, you've met Tom, I'm sure. So you oh, yeah. know, he was like, this is great. I love this guy. No, no, no. It's just like, <laughs> oh, my God, you are Cal McDonald. You know, he's, <laughs> he's, he's hard-boiled. Yeah. He's very hard-boiled. Um, so that got us talking. And while we were never able to get Criminal Macabre off the ground for entertainment, he became the model for the comics uh, that wow. Tim Bradstreet did the covers for. Wow. So we would do stuff like we would go to KMB effects and they would loan us body parts and corpses <laughs> and heads and monster masks and all this stuff. And we would go to my garage and stage all these covers. Right. It was so much fun. It was so much fun. That's so great. Well, what were the comics that inspired you when you were starting out? Um, well, I grew up on a lot of superhero stuff. You know, I grew up on Marvel in the 60s and 70s. You know, my, my peak buying comics was 1975. And that was just, that was a great time to be reading superheroes. But I also loved Creepy and Eerie. And my parents, still to this day, I don't know why, would buy it for me. Um, I remember specifically as a little kid bringing copies of Creepy to, to church. You know, oh, so wow. I'd have something to read. <laughs> and nobody ever said a word. Um, and then, you know, so it was mainly superheroes. And then I twisted tales started coming out in the eighties. Yeah. And that really pulled me back in. They had Richard Corbin and, you know, uh, Bernie Wrightson and all these just fantastic creators. Um, 
And that sort of pulled me into the horror world uh, of comics. Right. And I, and that's when it really took off. I'd always been a horror kid for books and movies. Um, but that was where I really started getting into the, in the horror comics and also planted that seed because these were independent comics at the time, planted that seed that maybe I could do it myself. Well, there weren't all that many horror comics around. It was really the world of superheroes and stuff and some hard boiled stuff and the like, but uh, with people like Bernie Wrightson, and I want to talk about Bernie because we both work closely with him and he was such a great human being as well as a great artist. So, yeah. um, but there weren't a lot of horror comics around. So you were kind of a trailblazer in that regard. And you kind of became the go-to guy for comic book horror. Yeah. For, you know, it all, it all changed when I wrote 30 days a night. Uh -huh. um, I, I had been doing, I was doing stuff for Todd McFarlane. Um, I was still you did spawn several issues of spawn, right? I did Hellspawn uh, for a lot of issues. I did Spawn for about two or three issues. I wrote Sam and Twitch. I wrote Spawn the Dark Ages. I was just like his house writer for a while. <laughs> um, but then we were on a break and Ted Adams was starting IDW Publishing. And he called me and said, look, we can't pay you a dime. But if you have some comic ideas, you know, that you just want to do, we'd love you know, we'd love to do them. So I sent him 30 days a night, criminal macabre and freaks of the heartland pitches. Mm. Um, and he picked 30 days a night. He was like, that sounds like a really cool idea. So we did the first issue. We didn't get paid. Um, it was just for fun. It was just to do a comic and it exploded. It just exploded in our faces, you know, uh, and, you know, wound up in a, in a, uh, what do they call it when multiple studios want a, a bidding war? war. Yeah. There was yeah. a bidding war over it, you know? And I remember at the time Sam Raimi was in the mix and I just said, whoever Sam Raimi's with, that's who we go with. No, good choice. Good choice. Yeah. And, and then along came David Slade, uh, who uh, of course uh, I've worked with on nightmare cinema and is such a unique visual stylist in the horror genre as well. And it, so was this your first Hollywood experience that actually went all the way through? Yeah, I had, I had been pitching for a few years and really got nothing, you know, just got nothing. I did a few entertainment things with um, Todd McFarlane, but none of them ever really took off a few scripts. So this one, and it, it just took off like wildfire. So it was a really, it was the first time I was in a room with somebody and it was with Ramey. And he basically just ended the meeting with let's go make a movie. <laughs> and I, I, I'd never heard that before. <laughs> so no kidding. It, was a yeah. really, <laughs> it was a really great experience. It was really great. And then, you know, it took seven years to get on screen, but they, they slayed and Ramey took care of the material, you know, yeah. and protect, you know, cause it, it could have taken some really awful turns at some, at some points. Um, yeah. Well, tell me about the development process. You were new to the, the greenlit Hollywood movie process and you contributed to the script as well, but tell me how that process went. I, I imagine you were the first writer, a screenwriter on it. I, I, was, I was the first screenwriter and it was my first time dealing with anything like this. And honestly, it, it was only going to be the third or fourth screenplay I ever wrote. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and 
there were so I think there were like 18 producers or something. <laughs> and I would, go, I would go to these meetings filled with people. And I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. So I thought I had to address all their notes. Right. So I, <laughs> so I had a really hard time. And I, and I honestly got to say, I mean, even though the, the, the comic is in there and it's 30 days a night, it's very different than the original comic. It took Brian Nelson coming on and he really beat it into shape. You know, he took it back to the, you know, the original structure. Um, right. And, you know, I didn't, I just didn't know what I was doing. Well, um, it's and, completely understandable. You've got a bunch of people in a room with years of experience. You're a newcomer into this medium that has been a part of your passion your whole life. And they're tell giving you notes. And of course you think you have to do that. What you realize after years of experience is you address some of those notes, tell them why you didn't do the other ones, but tell them what a great idea their thoughts were and how they inspired you to do something entirely of your own and let them believe that they helped you make the script much better. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it was a, it was a great learning experience. Um, but also kind of reinforced my love of writing comics. Yeah. Um, you know, cause I tried to do the screenplay and I really liked it, but you know, like I said, it didn't make it through, um, you know, uh, just enough, enough made it through. And it just made me realize, I mean, comics is a very specialized kind of writing, you know, and that's what I had grown up and learned to do, you know? So pretty much since then, I've just, I've let other people, write stuff. You know, I mean, we've, we have a, a couple cases that I've written some stuff uh, for TV and whatnot. Um, but most, I just always come back to comics. So really there's nobody between you and the page other than the artist. I, I'm sure you get a little bit of editorial input, but the world of comics is such that the artist, the author is king of his material, right? Exactly. I've always had a thing with my comic book editors. They can give me, they'll give me pages of notes and it's just sort of on a take it or leave it basis. Right. You know, um, but luckily I work with really great editors. Um, I've been very lucky. Um, so I take the notes, you know, most of the time, most of the time they do help, you know, a good editor improves a story, you right. know, so I've been and very lucky. you put lucky your ego aside, you know, if you get good notes, you appreciate it. You want to create something. You want your, project to get better. And if somebody has a good idea, no matter who it is, you're a fool not to listen. Exactly. And I don't think for a second, I know everything. So I love a good <laughs> note. I love a good note. Well, with 30 days of night, I remember going to the premiere at the um, Chinese theater and it was packed. And uh, so tell me about that experience. Here's something you typed it up. You had an artist adapt it into a comic book. Suddenly it's on a 70 foot screen in the biggest theater in Hollywood. And yeah. it's a packed house. Tell me about that experience. It was, you know, I, it's mostly a blur, but I do <laughs> remember they sent a car and, you know, we, we went there and I actually, when we pulled up the first time, I kind of wasn't ready. I saw the yeah. crowds and I saw this. I was like, can we go around the block a little <laughs> just once or twice? Um, so we went around the block a couple of times and then came back and I just, 
got thrown into it. You know, I'd, I'd never done a, uh, a, you know, a media line before. Right. Um, I'd never done any of that. So it was, it was very shocking, but it was also really cool. You know, one of the great things Slade was there obviously, and Ramey was there yeah. and I just sort of followed them and I could see, especially Rand, you know, uh, Ramey just lets everything just, he just goes with the flow. Yeah. So I did. And then, you know, it was one of those things. Cause I think when I was seeing the premiere, it was probably only the second time I'd seen it. Yeah. So it was very new for me too. And listening to the audience reactions and this and that, you know, it was, it was a great experience. It was, you know, one of my favorite experiences. Yeah. It, it can be amazing. I've had experiences, uh, particularly in my days when I was a writer before I was directing where I'd see a screening and it would be a huge success and it would be wonderful. And then I'd see something where I was one of the writers. I was maybe a writer one and there'd been two or three afterwards and I'm watching the movie for the first time and it's with an audience and I'm sinking lower and lower into my chair and going, <laughs> my life is over. You know? Yeah. Oh, I've definitely had that experience too. Yeah. You know, sometimes, sometimes it just doesn't happen the way you think it's going to happen. But so. you prefer, you feel more comfortable in the world of, of comics than in the world of uh, movies and TV. I do. I really do. I, I, you know, I've come to the point now where I've been adapted enough times, you know, even up to, we had a Netflix series last year. Well, is uh, that o- October faction, right? Yeah. October faction. I am perfectly comfortable with, you know, with putting my, putting my faith in the hands of, of someone else. Um, like, you know, I just, I, I prefer doing the comics. I prefer doing the inspiration for the movie than yeah. sitting down and writing. A movie. Well, it, it, there's a whole big deal about trust as well. You, you know, you do your work and then you put it in the hands of people you trust. And, and I guess that starts with in comics, an artist. And so let's talk a little about people like Bernie. You know, Bernie Wrightson is one of the gods. I was lucky enough when I was doing Riding the Bullet, which was about a young art student, to have Bernie come up to Vancouver and do all of his artwork, these panels on the walls and all of that stuff. And he had the time of his life doing that. And, you know, you are a big Frankenstein guy. And Bernie did the definitive illustrated Frankenstein. Um, just that, the it's the most beautiful, beautiful thing. So, so tell know, me about um, your relationship with Bernie, both as, as a guy and as a collaborator. Well, it was really funny the way we met, we were both doing a convention in Texas and I, somebody said, Bernie Wrightson's over there. And I was, Oh my God. And I started grabbing books off my table and I'm going to go give him some books. Probably gave him too many. Um, <laughs> But I went over and we, we just started talking and Liz was there. I met Liz yeah. and Bernie and we just started talking. And then all of a sudden he tells me where he lives. He lived two blocks from me. Oh, in wow. In North Hollywood. Yeah. In North Hollywood. Yeah. Um, so we just, we agreed, you know, we needed to hang out. He had a place he loved going called the beach, uh, the concrete beach where they had like oysters and beers and stuff <laughs> like that. So we, we would just meet when I specifically remember thinking, do not ask him to do any work because it just like everybody hit him up. 
you know, everybody who met him hit him up for, for work. So, and he really wasn't doing comics at the time. He was mostly doing uh, movie stuff and animation stuff. So I just, I just let it, let it ride. And it wound up being Bernie that brought it up. He had really? done a, a, a Simpsons Treehouse of Horror and with uh, Len Wein. They did a Swamp Thing uh, a parody. And he just, one day, one night, while we were out having drinks, he was just like, let's make some comics. Wow. And we started talking about ideas right there. We just started, you know, and the way Bernie would like to work, you know, I came up with an idea about this dead detective solving his own, his own murder. And then Bernie would come back with, can you work in giant ants? <laughs> like, <laughs> like dog-sized ants. And I was like, sure, sure, you know, whatever you want. And basically that's how we, we then would work. He would come over every Friday with Liz. We would order pizza and play Scrabble and talk stories. Wow. And whatever got the biggest laugh usually wound up in a comic, you know, because <laughs> the stuff Bernie and I did at first we did, uh, we did three or four books at first that were fairly light, you know, they were horror, but they were, they were, they were kind of funny and quirky and that, and then it was Bernie that brought up, we need to do a sequel to Frankenstein. Yeah. It's like, Oh my God, <laughs> you know, and those that, are big shoes to fill literally and figuratively. Yeah. So, you know, that was another one that came out of conversation. We would just talk. And the only thing different before with our first four books, Bernie and I would talk and I would go away and write. But with this Frankenstein, we would talk, get the story down, and Bernie would go and he was writing in the margins of his art that I would mm. then adapt. Wow. So this is one of those sit back and let the master do his thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, and if you've, if you've seen Frankenstein Alive Alive, Sure. He was at the top of his game. He was at the top of his game, you know. Uh, unfortunately, it's so he wasn't incredible. able. It's so incredible to, uh, for any kind of artist to have a style, to develop a style that is very much their own. That you can see it on one page of reading a, a paragraph of reading an author or a single drawing by an artist, and it has their signature that it could belong to nobody else. And Bernie was one of those guys. Bernie was always, you know, and throughout his entire career, I mean, I know he's known for being very intricate, detailed work. Like the Frankenstein book is just, that, that centerfold is just yeah. unbelievable with him in the lab. Um, but it was always his faces. I always mm -hmm. could recognize a, a Bernie face from any comic, you know, the whole time. Uh, I just, you know, I was a huge fan. And the fact that I got to be his friend and we got to work together is just phenomenal, yeah. you know, and I'm still hoping, you know, that's one of those projects I'm always pursuing, maybe bringing those comics we did to the screen. So uh, that's something I'm always working on. Yeah. He is so greatly missed. Yeah. Well, yeah. We, we had a couple of experiences together. Um, probably the first one was on fear itself, which originally was intended to be the third season of masters of horror, but the owners, um, Anchor Bay, sold the rights to Lionsgate, and Lionsgate decided to take it to NBC and make it a commercial television show with commercial breaks, with advertising, with broadcast standards and all of that. 
I chose not to be a part of the show. And then Stuart Gordon and some other people talked me into it saying, look, they did Twilight Zone this way. They did Outer Limits this way. We can do still do something really good this way. And so I brought together a group of writers um, as well as some others brought in by the other producers. Uh, and I knew you would kill. And it was a story called New Year's Day. And we had all 13 scripts written before the strike deadline, which was Halloween of that year. And at that point, the Writers Guild went on strike and I had to go on strike too. And they kept trying to talk me into staying as a producer and overseeing all of the rewrites being done by non-union writers that they brought in from Canada. Well, I couldn't do that. So I left the show. And I wasn't there to provide any kind of help or even protection for the people who had come in like you. So you had done this great script. They brought in Darren Lynn Bowsman as a director, but you weren't allowed to do any of the rewrites, right? No, no. They Once I turned it in, and because I was on strike too. Yeah. Um, it. I never, I did not know anything about what had been done to the script until I saw the show. And boy. So, that boy did they change it they changed it cuz you know that that goes back to uh, you know adapting Matheson, adapting barker uh adapting harlan ellison you know your job or what i thought my job was to make an accurate adaptation of this great short story yeah um and it was, it was a really cool story and really took some um took some tricks to sort of you know get it on the screen cuz what you know in print you can hide things a little easier. Yeah. Sometimes. This was one of my favorite scripts for the show. It was so good. And I was startled when I saw what came of it. I thought, wait, what happened to this? What happened to that? What happened to all these really great things that just went by the wayside? Yeah. It just went by the wayside, you know, and that's just, that's what happens. Yeah. You know, you know, with the exception of 30 days a night, that's happened. That seems to be what, what happens a lot. Yeah. People just, they've got to put their stamp on it. They've got to change it. Uh, it's its that old, remember the Harlan Ellison uh, line about, you know, he's like, you are working with people who have to go home to, to other people and say, I did something. And it's changing <laughs> yes. your script. And if you're changing your script is the something, they're going to do it. Yeah, you it's know? The, the little dog theory of the guy who has to lift his leg and leave a yellow stain on the project and call it his. <laughs> Exactly. You know, and I just don't like, because comics are so much more intimate. Yeah. You know, it, it's usually me, a publisher, an editor, and an artist, yeah. you know, and that's it. Letterers and colors come in sometimes too. Um, but it's, it's, it's very intimate. I have never had a comic changed uh, on me, you know, pretty much what you hand in is what, what comes out. Yeah. You know? So I'm a little, a little spoiled by that, I think. Yeah, well, this that show was a heartbreak for me in many other ways. You know, I wrote an episode that I was going to direct, and it ended up being entirely rewritten and directed by someone else, and, and I barely recognized it any longer. And and it was just a, a big heartbreak that, that my baby had been yeah. kidnapped. And uh, yeah. to see what happens, we had so many great people involved, and I, I think people did... Uh, some of their less than best work on that that project, and and to this day it breaks my heart. It happened. You know, I, some people don't even know there was a sequel to Thirty Days a Night. 
Yeah. It, didn't it go direct to video? Straight to video. Yeah. Um, and nothing like the comic, nothing like the comic. And, you know, I remember I had had one of the times of my life doing a story meeting with, with Sam Raimi. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to work with closely with him. No, oh, I was. A, I did a cameo in uh, in one of his movies, but that was the only oh. time I ever worked with him. And well, he was also in The Stand and in The Shining. Oh, oh, that, that's right, that's right. <laughs> um, I've never met a more enthusiastic guy. I mean, doing a story meeting with him, you come up, you throw an idea, he's clapping and laughing, and you know, and all, and we had this great story mapped out, and then. It just none of it made it to the screen, uh-huh. so you know it's just one of those things. You know, the, there was just no budget, and that's and that's just what happened. Yeah. Well, the thirty days of night experience, the the original movie is is so great because of all the people involved. You know, and I've worked with Melissa George a couple of times as well, one of my favorite actresses, and it just had such scope. You know, it had a style that you don't always get in a genre film from a studio in particular. Yeah, well, David Slade said he was trying to evoke Ben Templeton's art. Yeah. So there are there are some shots in there that are straight out of the comic, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I really felt like that, that one was just handled with love and I feel very lucky. I just feel very lucky to have, you know, especially my first time out of the gate to... Yeah. Uh, to get a good movie. And, you know, and that's really what I we just wanted a scary vampire movie. That's all I wanted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in, in Alaska. Uh, in Alaska. Did, yeah. did you, did you go to the set? Did you get to watch any of the production take place? No, I didn't go. It was in New Zealand. Um, and it, at the time I was just too busy. Ben went, Ben got to go. And uh, there's a few things. Vampires are wearing t-shirts that have Ben's art on it. He actually drew those. Wow. Uh, yeah, on the on the uh, t-shirts. So uh, you know, I didn't get to go, but Slade would send me updates almost daily. Yeah, you know, pictures what's happening. You know, and I, I felt very in the loop. Uh, it was just it was a great experience. It's nice for a writer to be included, and it's not the norm. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of things. You know, we had some serious. Uh, not arguments with the studio, but we had some things we had this, you know, uh, the, the worst note that I remember getting was we don't want the vampires to talk. <laughs> and like, well, then you're making a zombie movie. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, exactly. If well, they don't talk, their intelligence is, is part of what makes them scary. And I believe if I, if I'm correct, it was David Slade and Danny Houston who came up with the, the language. Oh, really? Uh, which I, in, I thought right away, I wished I had thought of that for the comic. Nice. So I was like, God, that makes them scary. That makes them so frightening that they can be surrounding you and you know you're going to die and you don't know what they're saying. You know, uh, just extra how, layer of creep. How, how great to be a creator and a writer uh, when they come up with an idea that you wish you'd thought of. Like, you know, the ending of The Mist that Frank Darabont came up with that wasn't in the Stephen King story. Stephen King said, I wish I'd thought of that. Yeah. yeah. Brutal ending. Brutal ending. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go back. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little about your days as a punk. Tell me a little about Grey Matter in 3. Uh, well, Grey Matter, you know, we were in high school when we did our first album. 
Um, wow. I think they were they were in tenth grade. I was in eleventh grade, um, and uh, basically it was like we're hanging out. Let's play in a band. Let's and they were all uh, Mark and Dante, the drummer and guitarist, had been in other bands. Jeff, the singer guitar player, was a very experienced musician. I owned a bass. <laughs> that, was, that was basically my claim. I was like, well, I have one. I don't know how to play it. Um, and it's only and one note at a time. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I was so bad at one point, I didn't know what I was doing. I was actually holding the E with my thumb. <laughs> you, know, you know, just, just, I didn't know what I was doing. And I learned it was a trial by fire. I learned practicing. You know, and they and we were just practicing a few months before they dragged me to my first show. And, you know, this was at a time the punk scene. Sometimes you got to play clubs. Sometimes you were playing in people's living room. Yeah. Uh, and this my first show was a living room show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, are you familiar with Ian Mackay? Uh, he's no. a minor threat Fugazi. Uh, he own, he's half owner of Discord Records. Oh, OK. Very, very big, influential part of the D.C. scene. When I st- when I got on stage, it was a it was a living room. I had my back to the audience because I was so nervous. I was so scared and so nervous. And I remember feeling these hands on my shoulder. And he it was Ian, and he just turned me around right on stage and made me face the audience. Um, so the education you know, in front, yeah, yeah. And you know, it was just I I loved it. I mean, we we were inseparable as a group anyway, as friends. So we're around each other all the time. So we were practicing and we got better and better. And we got to the point where somebody wanted to put out an album of ours. And I remember somebody had to skip school to record our album. (laughs) You know, we we were that young. Um, So we recorded our first album and we just kept going. Um, And then God, you know, there was a couple, I can't remember why. I think Dante went and played in a band called Ignition. And that's how the three of us wound up being in a band called Three. Mm-hmm. And it's so strange. It's all the same members, but a different drummer, completely different sound, completely different sound with just a different drummer. Um, so we did that. We then we put out an album and, you know, did a few East Coast tours. And then that, then that broke up. It's, there's a joke in D.C., basically. I mean, no band is still together by the time they get their records out, you know, because <laughs> it's like the same 20 people, for, you know, jumping in different bands with each other. So then Grey Matter wound up getting back together, and we broke up another time and put out more albums and, and all that stuff. But the thing that kills me, and actually I just wrote um, a biography about my days playing music. Wow. Uh, so an autobiography. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do a comic, an autobiography. Um, I'm going to do a comic with Nate Powell, who did the John Lewis March comic. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, I couldn't have got a better guy. He grew up on the punk scene. You know, he knew all, he's a little younger than me, probably like 10 years younger, but he, he grew up on all our records. So... Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a perfect situation because it's so hard, you, you know, nine times out of 10 depictions of music in, in film and oh God. It, it never works. It yeah. never works, you yeah. know? So um, Nate gives it that authenticity. He knows mm-hmm. 
you know, like one of, I have a pet peeve. Every time somebody does anything with punk rockers, it's a guy with a mohawk. Right. Of course. Nobody had a mohawk. <laughs> I mean, you know, there were people who were into the British stuff and had that, but you know, we were just kids, guys, you know, we, we weren't that much into the dress up. Um, right. So he knows those little details. So I'm really excited. Hopefully that'll come out sometime next year. Oh, that's amazing. So tell me who your music gods were, and then we'll get into other media as well. Um, well, you know, I mean, always Beatles and Stones, Yeah. you know, they were just huge for me as a kid. Um, MC5, you know, absolutely love them, you know, and then I got introduced to, to punk stuff like The Damned and The Ramones mm-hmm. and bands like that. Just, I just... I fell in love. You know, I was a kid living in the suburbs where everybody listened to Van Halen, you know, and I heard the Ramones and just was like, yeah, yeah beat it. on the brat, baby. <laughs> yeah. just Oh, I just loved it. Um, and I just remember, I mean, you know, cause I came late to it. Well, I guess what road to ruin came out in 79. Mm-hmm. So um, I remember that was the first one I heard and my life hasn't been the same ever since completely changed everything. What were the TV shows you watched as a kid that inspired you, that made you feel you wanted to create rather than do? Well, Twilight Zone. I mean, yeah. You can't go wrong with Twilight Zone. You know, I've always loved that. I love Rod Serling. As I got older, I realized that many of my favorite, favorite writers were, you know, Charles Beaumont, Richard Matheson. And, yeah. You know, I, I came to realize like, Matheson's this writer who has just chased me through my life. You know, I just love him. And I just, he's popped up everywhere. You know, I yeah. remember as a little kid, I loved Omega man, you know, oh, sure. um, and it was after Omega man, I discovered I am legend, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. But I watched a lot of old TV. I watched, you know, I love dragnet. I love the old, you know, the cop shows, Adam 12 and all those kinds of shows. I remember growing up on that. Um, but as far as horror and stuff, there was Night Stalker, you know, yeah, there yeah. was the, 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 you know, everybody my age says the same thing, but that boy, that Salem's Lot adaptation, oh, yeah. just for the scratch of the window, you know, uh, <laughs> scared the crap out of people. So, you know. Trilogy and, of Terror, maybe? Yeah. Oh, Trilogy of Terror, another Matheson that I didn't yeah, know exactly. till later. Three stories you by know, Matheson. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the Zuni warrior who doesn't, that's another one that, you know, you show people and they're like, I remember that. That freaked me out. I was lucky you know. enough to work with Richard Matheson on the second season of Amazing Stories. The first season I was a story editor and it was my first job. I'd been hired as a screenwriter. So I wrote or co-wrote like 10 of them over the course of two years. The second season, we had a weekly group of creators who would vet the scripts and suggest changes and the like. And it was Steven Spielberg and it was Richard Matheson and it was Michael McDowell and it was Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale and all of these tremendous people. Every week we'd go over the scripts and and compare notes and the like. And that's when I got to know Richard really well and a lot of other really interesting people I worked with. And, And Richard Christian Matheson and I, of course, have worked together several times, but, uh, Richard Matheson, again, like Bernie, one of a kind, just a unique, deep, you know, really complex artist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so giving. I mean, you know, I can't say enough 
he trusted a, a, a kid with his greatest novel, you know, and, you know, I don't know if you've ever read that adaptation, but um, yeah. I didn't edit a lot out. <laughs> I think <laughs> what bad. the book is, I think, 125 pages yeah. and the comic was 210. <laughs> All right. I'm going to order so, it right now. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't cut anything out cause I was just, well, you know, the way I appealed to him and I said, you know, it's been made into two movies and it, it hasn't at that time. Um, and it hasn't been done right. And I think I can do it right in a comic. You still know, hasn't been so, done right on the screen. Still hasn't been done right. You know, I, I was actually upset when I saw the last version of I am legend until I talked to Mr. Matheson. I went to his house with uh Del Housen from uh, dark galaxies. Oh, yeah. Brought me to Matheson's house. And he told me this story. He just said they have taken incredible care of me. And he said, when the I am legend adaptation came out with the Will Smith cover, he said, that's the first time he's ever seen a window display of his books. Wow. I know I was stunned. I was stunned, but that he, he didn't say anything about the movie, but he said it, it it gave the novel new life. You know, a lot of people read it. If it made him happy, it makes me happy. <laughs> exactly. That's how I felt. Now, you and I got to work together again. Originally, Nightmare Cinema, the idea was to do a group of low-budget feature films that would come out, you know, every maybe do two or three of them in a year. And we adapted one of your stories called Neighborhood Creep together. And we wrote it in like a few days, partly in Palm Springs. <laughs> That's right. In the hotel rooms. That's yes. right. That, and, that was actually a great experience. Uh, well, I had so much fun doing that. I don't often co-write, but when I have, it's always been a ton of fun. And I've always been such a fan of what you do and being able to do that together. Um, and just basically in a burst of creative freedom over the couple course of a couple of days, we put together yeah. something really cool that I hope we can still do. Oh, I would love to. And, you know, that was such a smart idea to just drive away from all distraction. Yeah. Get her, just get ourselves, lock ourselves in a hotel room and just write. I it, love that. It's the only time I've ever done that. And it really paid off. It was really good. Yeah. And I love so, collaboration. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not precious. So, you know, about my work. So I really I love working with other people and seeing what happens. Well, uh, you're in the right business for collaboration. Um, but tell me, I'd love to know the actual, I've never written a comic. And I'd love to know uh, the process of how you actually do it creatively, technically, and then when you get together with an artist and, and work that out. Tell me, start from step A and go through to Z with me if you could. Well, step A now is I used to be nuts when I, I just had too much energy when I first started out. I wouldn't write an outline or anything. I would just sit down and I'd make a few notes and then I'd dive in. And then I realized as I was going, I'm like, God, I'm making this so much harder on myself. <laughs> so I, I started writing outlines. So that's what I do now. The first step is writing a detailed outline. I usually will show that to the artist so they can start, you know, start visualizing. And then now this is not all writers because this thing with comic writers is you can get five different writers and you'll get five different types of script. Um, I write full script. 
which means I write page one, panel one. I describe what's in the panel. I add in the caption, the sound effects, the dialogue, panel two, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I go through the whole thing very much. But because I like to give the artist some freedom, I basically, what I'll do is I'll average maybe four or five panels a page. And then I send it off to them. And I just say, you know, do what you're going to do. Just do what you're going to do. And I get, I get varying results back. Um, but most of the time when you just let the artist sort of do their thing, you get back just wonderful work. And then I'll do another script once the art's done. Um, cause some of the panels have changed, moved around things, you know, added, I, you know, a lot of times artists will add panels cause they'll mm. see a sort of an action that needs a little more explanation. Um, and so I'll do a final script after that. Um, and then you know, it's once the art's done, it's sent off to the letterer and we have a comic book, you know, and uh, I've been really, you know, I'll give it, I'm working with an artist right now. His name is Simon, Simon Kudransky. Uh, he's, uh, he lives in Poland. Um, I had given him one of his first gigs in an early uh, 30 days a night comic. Somehow, 15, more than 15 years later, we've now wound up working together again. Mm-hmm. And we've been working through the pandemic. We're not, we're not pitching. We're not working with editors. We're not working. Anymore. We're just making comic books. Wow. And we're on our third series now. And I don't think I've ever had quite the kind of collaboration with him because he'll come in and there's a new four page sequence, you know, and I'm like, Okay, well, that's that's a lot of an you added a lot there, but it always works. It always works. So I, you know, I go back in and write. Uh, so, but you know that that's that's basically the process. You know, a lot of I, I mean, I'm sure you get this. I spend weeks just thinking about something, you know, before I'll actually you know start to write. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll tell you that out, doing outlines has really changed changed a lot. It's made made the comics. A lot more fun to write. Well, what about the idea of writing novels, something that does not rely on visual information as well, but entirely on the page? There's you and there's the reader and no, nothing in between. The only prose I've ever written is uh, for Cal McDonald, for Criminal Macabre. Mm. And the first person narrative, and it's Cal's voice. Right. And there's something about, I just love, it's like putting on a costume. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm actually, they're going to re-release um, all the novels um, coming this spring. They're going to re-release a big, big old fat book, but they wanted some new short stories. So yesterday, for the first time in years, I'm writing prose again. <laughs> um, and boy, do I have some cobwebs. You know, <laughs> I'm actually, <laughs> I, I've actually had to go back and read my own stuff to sort of jog my memory, get the voice, you know, get that voice down again. Because right. you know, a lot's changed in, you know, in the years since I've been writing Cal. So, uh, But there was a lot of it, Hammett there. There was a lot of James M. Cain there, right, in those influences. That's what I remember of Cal McDonald, was feeling like... And very LA-centric, you know. Yeah. It, it all takes place in L.A. It's always yeah. it's raining. It's always, you know, it's, it's just... Uh, I, I, I love writing that character. You know, and I just, I love the whole noir thing. So 
cast a deadly spell seemed to be an attempt to do that as well. That Joe Doherty. Yeah. Yeah. God, I did that years. Yeah. If I remember, didn't that lean more towards comedy? Uh, A little bit, but it took itself pretty seriously too. And uh, it was really interesting, but that was an early attempt to combine the, the gumshoe pulps and the supernatural. Yeah. Of course, Clive, Clive does that as well. But it's great. yeah, Clive. Well, he created Harry Demore, exactly. So you know, he had his hard hard boiled character. Yeah. So, what has been the most surprising thing that's happened to you with one of your stories? What is the artist who has given you back material that went, made you go, "Holy shit! I had uh, no idea that's what was going to happen." Well, aside from Bernie, I mean, because you can't go wrong with rights and illustrating one of your stories. There's an artist named Greg Ruth. And he did a story of mine called Freaks of the Heartland. Mm-hmm. And he made the comic. He literally, it's the only time that I've written a comic where I removed captions. Oh. So I'm like, I'm stepping on the art. I am stepping on the art. I'm ex- explaining what we're seeing because he was so good. You know, a lot of times you don't get facial expressions the way you want. There's all these, uh, you know, hand gestures, things that are very hard to get across in comics sometimes. And they were all there. They were all there. So I stripped out maybe half the captions um, because he just did such a beautiful job. And to this day, it's one of my favorites. Um, You know, that's actually David Gordon Green has the rights to that. Oh, Um, Maybe someday we'll see a Freaks of the Heartland on the screen. Would that be great? Now, are you mostly now um, your own boss? Are you, uh, I know you've always been involved in the publishing and and had your own companies and the like. Are you doing that mostly, or are you still working with the IDWs of the world and the, the other? Oh, um, I'm, I'm working with a lot more. Uh, I mean, I still work with Dark Horse and IDW. Um, I'll do work for hire every once in a while, just because I really, I love I love the work. Um, but mostly, I'm trying to gear things towards Image Comics, which mm-hmm. is a very DIY company where you retain all your rights. I'm very. You know, I, I just looking back, I, I, you know, every time I've got to do an entertainment thing, I've got a Dark Horse has it or IDW and I've got to go through this process. Um, so the stuff I'm doing with Simon right now, we're going to do it all through image so that we retain all our rights, you know. And what we're doing is we're trying to create a horror universe. So uh-huh. we're doing these three different series that all exist in the same world. So I'm very excited about that. And I just... Crazily enough, with with my partner, Shannon Denton, we started a production company called Monster Forge. I heard Um, about that. Tell me about that. Well, we're just starting out, but what it really is, is help, well, helping ourselves, uh, but also helping our friends. We know, between Shannon and I, we know so many creators. And most creators don't live in L.A., you know. And they don't know how to get through these doors. They don't know how to do these things. So we have assembled this unbelievable amount, <laughs> too many projects at this point. And what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, help develop them and shepherd them. Um, we're, we're talking, you know, live action, some animation, um, and maybe some, you know, some comics, because we want to, um, there's some stuff I've gotten the rights back to. Ah. Some, I did a book for DC called Simon Dark. And I got the rights back. We want to re-release the comics. 
So we'll, we'll do a little bit of comic work, but mostly, you know, we want to try to get some entertainment stuff and it's kind of fun. I've never really worked with development sort of being a producer. So I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning slowly, but I'm so far I'm enjoying it. Uh, just boy, it's a lot of work. You know, I had been re- through the holidays. I was reading scripts, stacks yeah. of scripts. So but that's always been the hardest part for me as a producer is reading the scripts. Yeah. Well, I used I'll... to do coverage for New Line. Oh, so, really? Ah. Yeah, I used to do coverage for them. And, and New Line had their coverage was recommend or don't recommend. So you really had to take it seriously. Right. Um, so I, I have some experience in just reading a lot of scripts and stuff. But luckily, we're working with a lot of friends. So we're getting, we're getting good quality stuff. You know, uh, I'm really, I'm really happy with it. It's really exciting. I'm very, That's you know, curious to see what will happen. Well, just one more thing I wanted to ask you about, because you have worked on franchises, whether it's the DC universe or Spawn or those things versus your own thing. Tell me about how it feels when you do walk into somebody else's universe and to take that responsibility on. It, you know, again, I think coming up and learning to write comics by adapting other people's material really made me respect source material a lot. So when I got to write, say, Batman, you know, which the first time you sit down and you type Batman, you know, (laughs) it's just just a rush. You've got to kind of sit back. But I feel it's my job. You know, I don't feel I'm playing in somebody else's sandbox. I don't want to tear the character apart or anything. I want to do a Batman story that people will enjoy. Um you know, uh, I'm not interested in, in recreating the characters or anything like that. I just, I like playing in other people's sandboxes sometimes, you know, it's really fun. And then when you get to do something like a Batman who I've known my entire life, you know, it's just, it's fun. It's just really fun. Well, Steve, this is so great. In the hundred or so interviews we've done, this is the first time we've done something comic-centric, and you are just the perfect guy to lead us through this world. And it's so good to catch up with you, and and I hope we uh, can keep that door open. Oh, that would be so great. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Thanks, Steve Niles. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.